Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Where does this play happen? Messina? No. Venice? No. Illyria! Illyria. I wanted to say Elysium, but that's not right. That's where the dead people are. No, it's the other place. Yep. (laughs) What happens in Messina? Illyria. Messina's much ado. There it is. Yeah. Venice is obviously the merchant of Venice. I knew it was Italy. Somewhere in Italy. Illyria. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Hamlet. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. Yeah. So this is our what fifth two hundred one level. I, I've lost. I count. stopped counting. <laughs> like stop counting after four. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. They're not special uh, anymore. It's a regular is... thing. This is one of our 201 level episodes, is what yeah. I was going to say, without trying to count. <laughs> um, so uh, the 201 episodes are a little different. We operate on the assumption that you have a basic familiarity with the play, so we won't do a synopsis. Uh, if you are a newbie to Twelfth Night, or you just need to refresh your memory, you can check out episode 6 of our podcast, which is Twelfth Night 101. Yeah, for the 201 episodes, we like to go narrow and deep. Today, Jess and I just had a lot of questions about Twelfth Night that we want to hash out. And those questions pertain to pants rolls and mistaken identity and hiding in plain sight. Um, And also a few things about the pants rolls, like how does everything change when Viola says she will pretend to be a eunuch and not just a boy? Mm. So stay tuned for that. We're going to sort of hash those things out today. Hot. We've got to love those eunuchs. Anyway, in our 101 episodes, we discuss definitions of rhetorical devices and give examples. But at the 201 level, we revisit a device that we've already drawn in a 101 episode and discuss the uses or possible characterizations of that particular device in performance. Yeah. In our 101 episodes, we say over and over that identifying rhetoric helps us understand a character or gives us a possible line rating. But, you know, what does that actually mean? Um, To answer that, we need to look at the specific context in which the device is used and think about the kind of device it is. Right. And this week, we're revisiting accumulatio, which is repetition in different terms. So it's an adding on, it's an accumulation of basically redundant information that's how i like to remember accumulatio it accumulates nice solid little uh definition there little yeah a little mnemonic device so our first example of that a really good one from olivia in act one scene five around line 250 depending on which edition you're using uh and it's olivia describing orsino she describes him as 
virtuous, noble, great estate, fresh and stainless youth, free, learned, valiant, gracious. And yet for all that, she can't love him. Mm. So she repeats over and over again all of his wonderful virtues, and still she can't love him. Yeah, I mean, which all sort of add up to just he's a nice dude. Like, what's the difference between someone being virtuous and noble? Right. What's the difference? Nobility between, is a virtue. Yeah. What's the difference between you know being free and gracious? Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or noble and valiant and right. all of those things. Yeah, Stainless, yeah. virtuous. Right. Completely redundant, really. But you know, fancy talk. Um. So mm-hmm. we also have another one, sort of after that. Not sort of after that. Definitely after that. Uh, in Act Two, Scene Three line 85-ish. So Malvolio comes in um, and he's talking to Feste and Andrew and Toby and Mariah and he says, my masters, are you mad or what are you? Have you no wit, manners, nor honesty, but to gabble like tinkers at this time of night? Do ye make an alehouse of my lady's house that ye speak out of your cosier's catches without any mitigation or remorse of voice? Is there no respect of place, persons, nor time in you? So, you know, accumulation of questions that are all sort of leading up to the same thing, which are, why can't you behave? And will you please shut up? Right. Um, are you mad? Have you no wit, no manners, no honesty? Uh, do you have no remorse of voice? Is there no respect of place, persons, nor time in you? Can you please treat right. my mistress's house like a nice place and not like a fucking alehouse? Can you be better? Please be better. Right. So short and sweet, but you know, I think gets the point across. Right. Yeah. So when we have those kinds of repetitions, but in different words that a character might be using them for clearly any kind of repetition is for emphasis. Right. But it's on the actor then to find find ways to to either, you know, play with pace or play with emphasis, you know, allowing allowing a a growing tone or a growth of tone like you know from uh quiet to louder or whatever so play playing with tone of voice playing with your tempo to see what kind of comedy um or other sort of emphasis you can squeeze out of that kind of accumulation of description because usually when we find accumulatio it is in moments of describing often it's somebody in love you might look to Orsino to find more examples of Accumulatio because he's always going on about how amazing Olivia is. So, you know, look at the character who's doing the accumulation and figure out like why they might be doing that. Uh, and that, I think, will help you read the line. Agreed. Well said. Well, let's move on. Moving on to our discussion topics for today. Yeah, so... We're doing a little bit different this week. You know, usually we sort of monologue about a thing that we're interested in. But this week, uh, it's a little more conversational, a little more we don't have answers. We don't have, we definitely have opinions, but we maybe don't have opinions that are fully formed yet. So we just kind of want to, you know, it's like, it's like an exploratory voodoo voodoo juju free wheeling i don't know man it's three weeks to the end what of the an, semester what an excellent example of accumulatio <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> did that on purpose yeah just totally scripted that yeah 
That's, it's all literally written down here in yeah. the outline. Um, great. Yeah. So, you know, I started with just sort of like, okay, what do I love about Twelfth Night? Like, why? This is um, my fourth favorite play. Why? You know, and I, I thought, okay, um, you know, the three things that I love most about this play are pants rolls, because high pants rolls. Um, yeah. So pants rolls, super quick. It's, it is a female bodied role in which the female bodied character spends a significant portion of the time, either well, a significant portion of the play, either in terms of the amount of time or in terms of support of the plot dressed as a man or boy or something not her gender um so quick and dirty that's what a pants roll is Mm -hmm. and twelfth night has one of those you know viola spends the entire play uh except for one scene dressed as a dude dressed as her brother pretty much yeah so i'm interested i'm interested in the pants roll uh i'm also interested in mistaken identity uh in this play which is a rather big crux, uh, starting in about Act Four when Sebastian shows up in Illyria. Yeah, so I, I'm interested in the mistaken identity, uh, and then third, I'm interested in hiding in plain sight, which is like my favorite comic trope on the early modern stage. Motherfucker, I love that shit. When you have a bunch of characters who are hiding, uh, but we can see all of you. Um, so those three things, Pants Rolls, Mistaken Identity, Hiding in Plain Sight, are all hallmarks of Shakespearean comedy. And one or two or all three of those things also happen in As You Like It, The Comedy of Errors, Cymbeline, Love's Labor's Lost, Merry Wives of Windsor, Sort of Midsummer, Much Ado About Nothing, Merchant of Venice, and Two Gentlemen of Verona, which is nine so plays. all of the good comedies. <laughs> So like all of them. yes, uh, and you know I threw in <laughs> Cymbeline there. It's not a comedy, but it's like yeah. it's Shakespeare in a blender. It's, it's got a pants roll. Yes, yeah, and mistaken identity. And eh, I don't think it has hiding in plain sight, but it's got two of the three. So all of this preamble is sort of to to ask the question: How do each of these three things—the pants rolls, mistaken identity, and hiding in plain sight—how do they function in this play, and what makes them distinct from the other plays using these features? Good question. Yeah, and I don't um, have an answer. Yeah, or at least I don't well, have I think an answer. But. I think the easiest one that just jumped out to me was is the mistaken identity mm-hmm. issue mm-hmm. Uh, because you know whereas with comedy of errors or what's the other twin play is that the only other one it's the only other twin play uh, um uh, yeah it's the only other twin play. yeah so i mean whereas with comedy of errors we've got you know two sets of male twins mm-hmm. right this is a set of fraternal twins yes. we have a boy and a girl um so you know but right there that's it's asking more of the audience. I think, Absolutely, right? it is. Yeah, you and know, how do asking you... asking you to believe that a boy and a girl twin look so similar <laughs> in build and everything that right. they could be mistaken for each other the way identical twins would. Right, and that lends an extra challenge to performance. Right, like I mean, yeah. first of all, how do you stage twins when you aren't actually using twins? Which right. I, there must be a performance someday somewhere who has used twins, who's used, you know, actual twins. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't know of it 
clearly it was not a success. It wasn't a groundbreaking <laughs> seminal production. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, it must happen. Like, there must be a set of twins in a high school theater department somewhere. And their teacher's like, and we will do Comedy of Errors this year. You know what? I had the chance to use actual twins. I had a set of girl twins at this one school my first year teaching their seniors, mm. right? And it was really tempting to do to try Twelfth Night or Comedy of Errors. Um, but I went midsummer instead because mm. they had this was a really like rural school sure. who had never done Shakespeare before. Sure. So we just had to deal with the opposite problem of these two young women were identical <laughs> and they played totally different roles. One of them played Hermia and the other was I think Titania. I mean she nice. you know yeah, so we had to deal with that, sure. um, but, oh, man, it was very tempting. I was like, oh, man, oh, man. And then the next year I did do Comedy Bearers when I didn't, when they had graduated and I didn't have them anymore. Oh. I'm still sort of kicking myself for Missed that. Missed opportunity. I, I know. I think they would have rocked it. Yeah. Um, it could have been me. You know, I think, I think it's interesting in this play that the twins are split gender. Split gender? Yeah. That's a weird phrase you know what i mean but it's a weird phrase they are different genders yeah. um <laughs> guys it's three weeks to the end of the semester it's my brain it's done split gender good grief split gender. <laughs> what even is that i know you've just created a new like cultural construct right now i mean i think like it I'm... just probably translates to non-binary but that's not yeah. what this play is so let's yeah, no. wow all right Jessica, anyway get your get your head in the game we were talking about um, how do you how do you deal with twins that are right. different genders anyway? Right. Yeah. And so how do you cast that? Yeah. Right? How, I mean, do? how do you cast that? You know, I played Viola in um, high school. It was my sort of the crowning achievement of my theatrical career. My senior year of high school <laughs> playing Viola. Oh, baby Jess. <laughs> yeah. Back when I was still an actor, and the. The kid that was cast as uh, my twin Sebastian was about a foot shorter than me and blonde, like super blonde. Um, and so the, you know, the way that we sort of solve that problem, which I think is the way that many, if not most productions solve the problem is just identical costuming, Right. And you're asking the, the yeah. audience for willing suspension of disbelief. Like, um, right. you know, the most recent Twelfth Night that I've seen is surprising no one. Um, the 2016 production at the American Shakespeare Center. Uh, and Viola was played by Jessica Williams, who is black. And um, Sebastian was played by Benjamin Reed, who is the whitest boy you know. Uh, and very blonde too. So blonde. Very blonde. Um, and they they solve that problem. Uh, that you know they look nothing alike uh, by just putting them in the exact same costume. Those costumes were gorgeous. Also, I'm really like mm-hmm. khaki linen suits and turquoise bow ties, and they had straw boater hats. Ooh. And I was about it. The costumes were great for that production. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think so. That's... We're relying then, we're relying then on the audience's facial blindness. Yes. I guess. We're, yeah. We're going to ask them to be facially blind. Yes. <laughs> like an early modern script, sometimes right. or early modern characters have facial blindness. Right. Um, you yeah. know, another way to get around it is, 
having one actor play both parts. Mm-hmm. Which you have seen. Yeah. Yeah. I saw and I you went saw, off. And we, you, we gave yep. me feelings corner time yep. last time we talked about this. Yeah. Because I had lots of feelings about it that were upsetting. Yes. It's um it's a choice. I didn't have a problem so much with double casting the actor because right. she did a great job with what she was given by her directors and the production concept. Right. Like, but she, like, in terms of her physicality and her voice, like, she was very nuanced and she was great. Um, and I think actually that actor is a sort of gender fluid person Fantastic. in her life. So, yeah, and that's kind of the work that she does generally. Um, sure. She does, she's cross-gendered a lot. I've seen her in other productions at OSF and she often um, plays boy, boys and men as well as women. Um so she was wonderful. I I just wish they had done the reveal differently. Sure. I mean, that's, you know, if you go back to episode six and listen to my rant, I'm not going to, I'm going to try real hard not to go down that rabbit hole. Again. Sure. But it was a terrible production choice on how they revealed it and how they dealt with it after. And I didn't like it. Um, right. Well, and in, you know, in um, 2017, 2018, in this decade now, uh, that kind of gender queering really needs to be handled um, sensibly. Yeah. Uh, because it's, it's going to be a political statement. So right. make it well, I guess. Right. You yeah. Know, Cause you're right now it. with, yeah, it's definitely going to read differently to audiences today than even audiences 10 years ago. Yeah. Right. It's just going to read differently because gender politics are a big fucking deal right now. Yeah. So, yeah, if you're going to make that choice, do it right. Right. <laughs> and do it maybe sensitively, conscientiously. Yeah. You know, think about your choices for real. Just like think about your fucking choices. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's wise, wise words and sensible advice. Yeah. Um. So to, you know, to keep us moving forward, let's. Mm-hmm. chat about hiding in plain sight and how it works in this play Yay. sort of differently. You know, this is, this is one of, I think the, the three big hiding in plain mm-hmm. sight slash goaling plays, right? We've got much right. ado and love savers lost and this one. Right. Um, and I love that. I love all of these scenes. I think they're fantastic. Right. I think it's the funniest shit uh, that anyone anywhere has ever written. Um, it's such a good gag. It's, it's just reliably such a good funny. Gag. Yeah. So, you know, what are what yeah. are the differences between this this play and the way it's employed here and, you know, Much Ado and the other one, Love's Labors? You know, Love's Labors, I suppose, is hiding in plain sight, but there's no gulling. Um, right. Barone sort of tries to pull off a goal at the end and then he's found out. So it's right. maybe an attempted goal. Yeah. So, you know, that's, you know, that's a way um, that we can sort of take Love's Labor's Lost out of the equation. But mm-hmm. the, the Much Ado goal and the Twelfth uh, Night goal are really similar, right? There's maybe are, more yeah. people involved, but not really. You know, if you take the two yeah, going no, scenes like... and Much Ado together, it's the same amount of people. Yeah. There's a letter in this yeah, one, I guess. It's... It's like three people ganging up on one. Yeah. 
three-ish, depending on if you cut Fabian or not. Yeah, if you involve Feste um, in it. Right, and involve Feste. So maybe it's more people. It's a little more complicated, more bodies on stage right. with Twelfth Night, whereas you've just got Don Pedro, what's-his-face, Claudio. Leonardo. And Leonardo. It's just the three guys yeah. going Benedict, so four bodies total. But So Twelfth Night has more bodies on stage. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, I mean, they're both gulling scenes because they're both pranking a person yeah but like one is done i think with love and good intentions <laughs> for the for the recipient of yes. that prank yeah and the other is done maliciously right this is viciously malicious maliciously very revengey yeah but it's, it's comic revenge right like right you're supposed yeah. to laugh at this we're not supposed to feel right. bad for malvolio even at the end when he comes in and says you know i'll be revenged on the whole pack of you and runs off right. in distress. Like we're not, we are not supposed right. to feel bad for Malvolio, and that uh, you know it leaves a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths. Um, at the end of this play, is is right. our modern sensibilities sort of automatically are like that was funny, but it's not cool, guys. Like they yeah. could have they could have left it at the letter. That I think would be. Not great, but right. fine. You know, that's a funny haha joke. But then they, you know, put him in a in a cell and trick him into thinking he's crazy. That's that's less okay. But I think also, um, one big difference in the twelfth night, the box tree scene, right? And uh, the much ado gulling of Benedict. Because let's face it, when we're talking about the much ado one, we're talking about the gulling of Benedict. Right. Not, we no one really ever talks Beatrice. about Beatrice. <gasps> that scene is it's not as fun. Shit. It's, it's so poorly written. It's it's cute but it can't hold up to the benedict one that came right before it that's a tough act to follow to be fair okay but what i think is inverted is you've got in 12th night you've got the four people eavesdropping on the one person that they're gulling right because they've dropped the letter for him and then they're listening to him read it and sort of suss it out and they're making fun of him with much ado you've got the one guy eavesdropping on the other three instead of the other way around uh is really all i was trying to say there oh yeah. so yeah. i don't know you, you know what i'm saying yeah it's so a, like it's so inversion in, you've got the one person hiding yeah you've got benedict hiding in much ado overhearing you know this staged conversation whereas you've got three to four four three to four five yeah. no it could be five could be right? five it could be, it could be toby Mariah, Andrew, Mariah, Bessie, and Fabian. Yeah, it could could be up to five people trying to hide from one person. Yeah, in Twelfth Night, which I think is way more complicated to stage. Right. You know, so in right? Much Ado, no one in that scene thinks they're alone on stage. In Twelfth Night, one person thinks he's alone on stage, and in Love's Labor's Lost, um, at least one person at all times thinks they're alone on stage, but that sort of, right. You know, it compounds, right. Cause uh, Barone comes out and then the King comes out and then the other guy, right. and the other guy, Domain and Longaville. Um, right. Right. You know, so there's always one who thinks they're alone on stage, but it rotates. And in, in right. 12th night, it, you know, M- Malvolio thinks he's alone. He thinks he's got privacy. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, interesting variations. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know that we solved any problems or really answered any questions, but that was a fun conversation. No. Uh, what do you, what are you interested yeah. in? What do you want to ask? 
Um, you know, maybe maybe this is answered in the in the Arden three notes about Twelfth Night, but what the hell <laughs> does Twelfth Night or what you will uh-huh. have to do with the content uh-huh. of the play and the plot of this play? Yeah. Uh, I have I personally have never once seen this play staged as a wintertime or Christmas play. Um so, so I never have personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, neither know. have I. Except uh, and I, I can feel him lifting up his phone to text us. Marshall, our good friend Marshall, um, the twelfth night that he directed at Millburn? Mill Millburn Stone? Yeah. Uh, in the you know the summer between our first and second years, uh, Merlin right. and I went up and saw it, um, and I felt that it was not Christmassy at all. Uh, but apparently, um, the the little tables in the front where I was not sitting and couldn't really see from where I was had Christmas decorations on them, and that was oh. the only nod I think to it. Uh, and I'm sure there was there was a rationale behind it. Uh, I don't remember what it was i know we talked about it yeah. but god it was five years ago get off my back marshall yeah. hey marf if you're listening you know get in touch with us text tweet us yeah whatever tweet let us, us know tweet what us you were and, doing and then we'll retweet you and, and we will can find yeah. out and we'll add it on as an addendum to another episode yeah, yeah. You know? what the hell were you doing marshall yeah marshall defend <laughs> your choices <laughs> it was a great production there were umbrellas that i loved every it was very umbrella-y and Tess played the drums, which I didn't know she could do. Um, so anyway, to go back to what the fuck is with this title, the notes in the Arden Three say the following. The comedy's second title, What You Will, is a proverbial catchphrase, not always benevolent, colon, CF15105, where Olivia uses it to express her impatience toward Orsino's courtship. John Marston's comedy, What You Will, was probably performed slightly earlier than Twelfth Night. All right, so what does Olivia say at 15105? Because, of course, the Arden. I see, I knew the Arden would have an answer to this. The Arden and has I'm an glad you have a copy of it. 15105. This is why we love Aha. the Arden. So Olivia is talking to Mariah and Malvolio, and she says, Fetch him off, I pray you. He speaks nothing but madman, fie on him. She's referring to Sir Toby. And then, go you, Malvolio, if it be a suit from the Count, I am sick or not at home, what you will to dismiss it. So I suppose that the proverbial nature of what you will is just to sort of express flexibility, make your own choices. It is what you make of it. You are free to choose. Maybe there's some agency in there. So, um... You know the the what you williness um, <laughs> is is perhaps reflected in the choices that characters make. Um, you know there mm-hmm. is a lot, frankly, of agency in this play, uh, particularly located in the in the female characters. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Vi- Viola does disguise herself as a man for protection, um, but has she makes that choice to do so and then has a a significant amount of freedoms because of it. Um, You know, Olivia is a single woman living in a household, running a household by herself. You know, she's recently left father and brotherless and she's of course unmarried, but is exercising her 
ability to refuse a suit from the goddamn duke right like yeah, kind of yeah. seems like he could just say no no i command you to marry me but he right. doesn't and you know so anyway um so that i don't know there's that's a thought yeah so then the twelfth night part though <laughs> well i mean <laughs> like if we if we refer to the well-known historical record shakespeare in love <laughs> then we can uh, yes. see the factual the documentary evidence. <laughs> yeah. that the documentary shakespeare in love yes yes queen elizabeth commissioned this play for the twelfth night festivities at court i don't believe night. there's any credence to that but let's no. refer to the arden and see i if mean they and i also it. know you know i i know that the twelfth day of Christmas or twelfth night, right? It was also referred to as Epiphany, mm-hmm. um, and we know that the word Epiphany means like a, a realization. So, you know, perhaps there's there's juice in that, um, I, whether intended or not. You know, by Shakespeare, um, that has kind of always occurred to me. Like, oh, you know, this play is sort of full of revelations of of a kind, uh, especially at the end. You know, revealing the twins and fixing the identity problems and stuff so maybe maybe there's that um yeah there you know i don't know there does not appear to be any mention of that myth um in the arden of the christmas time stuff yeah okay uh or at least it's not looking at the table of contents nothing jumps out where that would obviously go um the editor of this uh kier elam uh, it sounds very Irish, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Is really focused on the body, space, place, language, and performance history. So, yeah. but uh, like modern performance history. Oh well, seasonal mm-hmm. nights. I wonder what that is. First night. All right, hang on, hang on. Let's go see what this is. Ninety three. Do 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 do. Uh, okay, so the first known staging of Twelfth Night bears the date February 2, 1602. If the play's title refers, as is often supposed, to the occasion of its first performance, it was presumably staged on 6 January of the same year, or possibly the year before. The question of the play's theatrical debut clearly influences the issue of date of composition, blah de blah blah Okay. Hmm. Uh, the first plausible hypothesis regarding the comedy's debut was advanced by the 19th century German critic Gregor Sarazin, Sarazin, Sararzin, uh, who linked the play to the presence at Queen Elizabeth's court of Don Virgino Orsini, Duke of Bracciano, on 6 January 1601. Shakespeare, according to Sarazin, conceived his Duke Orsino as an homage to Duke Orsini in a performance commissioned for the latter's visit. This Italian connection, later taken by J.W. Draper and then elaborated into a full historical narrative by Leslie Hodson in The First Night of Twelfth Night, is supported by contemporary documents such as a memorandum of the Lord Chamberlain, Lord Hunston, patron of Shakespeare's company, referring to the choice on the occasion of the Queen's 1601 Twelfth Night festivities of a play, quote, that shall be furnished with rich apparel, have a great variety and change of music and dances, and of a subject that may be most pleasing to her majesty. It is almost certain that the Lord Chamberlain's men, Shakespeare's company, performed the chosen play, that it was a comedy 
That it was a comedy is demonstrated by a letter sent by Duke Orsini to his wife, the Duchess Flavia, on 18 January, in which he informs her that, quote, a comedy was performed mixed with music and dances, adding, disappointingly, quote, but I will save this as well, like other details, to tell you about it in person. All right, so maybe it's just, it's, you know, it's uh, perhaps untitled and became known as the Twelfth Night Play because uh-huh. of the date of a performance, you know, and then okay. the What You Will is the subtitle. Maybe What You Will is the actual title, but Twelfth Night is the one that got hmm. popularized just as a sort of a locator for right. when it was performed first. Um, interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know that that there was any credence to that. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, I mean that, there's documentation. It sounds like yeah, um, some anyway. Yeah, he, the editor goes on to come up with a couple other hypotheses about debut performance date that are not related mm. to Twelfth Night. So it sounds okay. like there's you know some disagreement in scholarship, but also that's way more it's way more fact uh, than I ever expected to yeah. find there. So interesting. That is. Yeah, that so, is. Okay. Solving so that, that problem. That kind of answers my, yeah, okay. It kind of has my question. And I, I guess maybe an addendum to that question would then be, you know, if you were to produce this play, how might you use the title to influence your interpretation of the production? Um, both parts of the title or maybe one part of the title? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the many meanings and nuances of the title? I don't know. You know. I've never, like I said, I've never produced Twelfth Night. I don't know if I would bother, but it might be there if you're looking for a way in as a director. I don't sure. know. Uh, you know, every every avenue of inquiry, I think, is productive in some measure. So, yeah, I'd be interested to see someone take it up. Uh, and my second question, my <laughs> both of my questions have in them WTF. That's allowed. What, what the fuck? Um, okay, so one thing I noticed while we were scouring the text uh, in preparation for this episode is that in Act 1, when Viola, it's Viola's very first scene, when she's, you know, what country friends is this? And she's trying to figure out what the hell she's going to do to maintain her virtue and also continue go on with her life sans brother you know she says that she's going to present herself to the duke as an eunuch she says it at least twice she uses the word eunuch um i i don't know if maybe those words when i've seen when i've seen the play in production maybe i just didn't hear them or perhaps that word was cut um, but how does that change the play? Does it change the play if Viola presents herself to Orsino as a eunuch? And right. what does that say later when Orsino is like kind of saying things like, oh, you know, if you were a girl, I'd actually be attracted to you. Does that change the sexualization of yeah. Viola and sort of the homoerotic feel there? So I have two I answers. Know. I have two answers to that. Um, or I have one answer and a, and a further question. Um, she presents herself as a eunuch to Orsino. Why not also to Olivia? Why doesn't she make that clear? Like the second that Olivia's like, I want to fuck you. 
Like, why right. is like, I'm a eunuch, girl. Uh, right. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what's that about? And then I think, I think the representation of herself as a eunuch to Orsino, while it sort of, you know, delays their getting together, um, does make Cesario sort of a, a safe space for Orsino to sort of project some sexual feelings and um, maybe just sort of air how he's feeling in general, right? Because a mm-hmm. eunuch cannot act on sexual urges. A eunuch right. doesn't have They're sexual urges. They're not threatening. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think the, the perhaps eroticism of their relationship while Viola is as Cesario perhaps reinforces some ideas of masculinity in that because we don't we don't see Orsino talking this way or behaving this way with Valentine and Curio who we can assume right are are intact intact presumably um confederates of of Orsino probably in the same age demographic I don't know if we know much about their ages but they always seemed like bros and not advisors to me so you know the fact that Viola as Cesario is presenting as a non-sexual entity um Mm -hmm. maybe maybe gives Orsino a place to explore his sexuality that he doesn't have otherwise and I don't mean explore his sexuality and like you know it's college we all experiment in college like not that kind of explore your sexuality but right you know maybe philosophically explore his sexuality and and talk about the complicated feelings uh you know and then we also have to remember right that the early modern conception of sexuality and gender and you know is far more not spectral because that means like ghosts but it was on a spectrum (laughs) it was more fluid perhaps it was less rigid and established um and I just read an argument somewhere or I don't know maybe Jeffrey Mastin uh, but is talking about um homonormativity as being the prevailing mode in in early modern England and actually heterosexuality being the the deviant form deviant is the wrong word but the the one that needed more sort of convincing and talking into and defense sure you know like you you were supposed to have confidences and special relationships with those of your own sex and the the hetero relationship was you know mostly for consolidation of power and furthering the dynasty right reproduction not um emotional support Right. Okay. And I mean, also on a very practical level, probably for Viola saying she's a eunuch as opposed to a man or even a, a preteen boy helps her mask probably the difference in her voice, right? Yeah. Her vocal tone. So I get that. Like yeah. on a very, very pragmatic level, I get that. But yeah, it does bring up a bunch of other questions. Mm-hmm. Like, and I hadn't even thought of the Olivia aspect. You know, how is it? <laughs> and I mean, how is it that, that Olivia doesn't see eunuch you know viola does not read as a eunuch immediately to olivia at all right but somehow she manages to pass that way for orsino 
is that because Orsino's so like he's got his head so far up his own butt with his love feelings for Olivia that he just doesn't kind of notice he doesn't take a second look I mean you know what does that say about how can we let that inform how Viola is dressed how she speaks how you know and, and is trying to put on like being a boy you know it, it brings up I think good generative questions especially if you're the the actress playing Viola um or maybe the director right. um but but yeah, I I that was just one of my WTF kind of moments. Like yeah. how can this complicate but also maybe serve a production? Sure. I mean I think presenting as eunuch also offers a further sort of level of self preservation for Viola, um, in that if she cross dressed just as a boy, just as a regular right. run of the mill, there's one on every corner boy and established herself in the Duke's household as a eunuch. She does not run the risk of like being used as a pawn in a dynastic marriage. Right. Which would not end well as she is a woman and we'd be married to a woman unless that's what she wants, in which case that would end very well. Um, right. <laughs> but the play does not give us any evidence to support that. Right. Yeah. I can't imagine the repercussions uh, of something like that. That seems like it would be a very dangerous situation to get oneself mm-hmm. into. Um, so, you know, saying, I'm a eunuch, uh, frees her of any and all yeah. sort of interpersonal responsibilities. Yeah, it so. makes her completely non-threatening. Yeah. So, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Any final thoughts or shall we move on yeah. to some gossip? I think let's move on. But also that I think was a really generative conversation and I'm super into it. Yeah. So I think so. Way to go we may try this format again. Yeah. Long distance <laughs> high five. Boop. Yeah. Boop. <laughs> All right. righty. What do we got? What do we got? What do we got? So, okay. So for our 201 episodes, we do try to keep our Shakes Bubble Gossip play centric. So we, most yeah. of our Shakes Bubble Gossip is to do with Twelfth Night. I mean, however, yeah, there's, there's other lot. stuff happening in the Shakes Bubble that needs discussing before it becomes hashtag fake news or old news right so first thing is margot robbie the actress is doing a shakespeare lady thing in conjunction with australian television she is going to be producing female lead shakespeare stuff a a female-led shakespeare project and she's choosing roles like let me see uh let's see it says the project and i'm reading from an article called the credits um from an online venue called the credits i think it's australian the project will be tapping female voices to retell the stories it'll be a series in on australian television hopefully it will make its way across the pacific and come to us and our television waves because it sounds fascinating. It's going to be leading the production. Uh, let's see. She's leading the production. She's expected to write at least one of the installments. So this sounds like taking female Shakespeare characters and adapting their stories. Uh, if I'm reading this correctly, it will share diverse points of view from writers representing the different cultural areas within Australia, which would not readily associate with the works of Shakespeare. So. I don't know. It's going to be a 10-part series, modernize and add to the themes and add a global perspective. Sounds like a really cool thing. Go you, Margot Robbie. Sounds fabulous. 
I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, I'm just fascinated to see it. Yeah. So let's next talk about the news out of the globe this morning. Uh, today, Wednesday, the 11th of April. Uh, although, you know, it'll be a little bit old by the time our listeners hear this. Yeah. Three, four, but only five a days. Yeah, it's, it's really recent. I'm really glad that we're recording today and not on Sunday like we planned because this yeah. announcement is fantastic. Okay, so... Um, this morning, the Globe announced uh, the casting for their summer rep of Hamlet and As You Like It. Um, and it is a company of 12 actors who are playing, you know, they're they're in both plays. It's like a mini rep of this company, this tiny company. It's a mini company, mini rep. Uh-huh. Okay. And it is gender balanced, right? So we've got six men, six women. And Ooh. it's gender blind. So. Um, half half of this group is playing one gender in one play and the other gender in the other play. Ooh. Yeah, so Michelle Terry, who is the new artistic director, is playing Hamlet in Hamlet. Ooh. Um, and then is also going to play um, Adam in As You Like It. So oh, wow. yeah, so she's she's playing. I'm. I guess she's playing two men, but is playing young young Hamlet and then old Adam. You know, as I remember Adam, blah blah blah, uh, which oh, is Adam, which is cool. Um, and then Shubham Seraph is playing Ophelia in Hamlet and Oliver in As You Like It, which is a Ooh. cool sort of. I mean, not only not only are these these actors playing multiple genders that's a range like would you expect the same person to play ophelia and oliver no those are those are you know we're not getting trope characters here um you know the the guy who's playing polonius is also playing sylvius amazing yeah (laughs) right uh amazing the guy who's gonna play the ghost is then playing touchstone like oh, awesome. these are different roles. They're hugely different. Yeah. You know, nobody is playing wow. um nobody is really playing sort of like the same kind of character in both, except maybe uh Tanika Yearwood, who's playing Marcellus and Amians. Mm, but yeah. only because those are both sort of like stock fill in the blank yeah. parts, right? Um one of the most exciting things about this casting is that Nadia Nataraja, I hope I'm saying that right, um, is a deaf actor, and she is playing Celia and Guildenstern. Amazing. Oh, amazing. Wow. Okay? Amazing. Ugh. Right? Like, that's such good casting. And so, so all of this casting is fantastic. And then we get to the fact that these are, both of these shows are sort of renaissance style there is no director in the room both of these performances are going to be crafted with complete actor agency i'm sure there's some you know over cement by you know sure i mean obviously cement (laughs) three weeks to the end of the semester guys oversight (laughs) oversight you know michelle terry who's the artistic director is in the room clearly she's playing hamlet like i'm sure she will have um some sort of guiding hand sure but i mean what just what fantastic casting right uh and the 
this so the gender parody is exciting um the racial parody is is phenomenal you just i mean pull up the headshots of these actors and it's it is all walks you're you're gonna see everything and everyone and then you know we've got some some uh deaf representation on stage which i am so fucking here for yeah some differently abled actors that's really cool i am i'm all about it so it's really exciting um go check it out like fuck i wish that i could be in london over the summer I know, right? Somebody please buy me a ticket to London. Like, that'd right. be nice. My birthday is coming in like six months. Research Can we trip. Just work that out. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, I totally need this for my job. Write me a grant. I want to go. Yeah. I want to see it. Um, wow. That's cool. Yeah. So then moving on uh, to, to the next item, which is in fact Twelfth Night related. Earlier this week, just a some short number of days ago, on the seventh, April the seventh, uh, they announced that the director of Omkara is going to adapt Twelfth Night. Um, so Omkara, if you don't know it, is sort of like the most globally famous um, Indian adaptation of Othello. Ooh. Yeah, it's really cool. So the the director, his name is, again, my whiteness is showing, I'm so sorry, Vishal Bardwaj, I think. So he's directed uh, Amkara, which is Othello, and then Hyder, which is Hamlet, and Macbool, which is Macbeth, uh, over huh. the last, you know, decade-ish, 15 years. Um, and is you know, this is so the first comedy that he's going to do. And Amkara has been just, I mean, it is in every sort of adaptation class it's always showing up you know in, in my twitter feed someone's like i'm teaching i'm car today blah, 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 blah. it's gonna be great and this is you know his first uh foray into comedy do we know perhaps when that adaptation might come out when when that's projected to happen no. um i don't think so i don't it's think just it announced says. that he's working on yeah it. he uh says he's gonna do three of the bards comedies it doesn't say what the other two are but so he was talking to the Bombay Times about mm. this and says, quote, this particular play had two titles. One was Twelfth Night and the other was What You Will. The play was called Twelfth Night because it was first performed 12 days after Christmas. The title also refers to the night before Epiphany, the day when the wise men visited infant Jesus. When I wanted to adapt it to a more contemporary and Indian setting, I decided to call it Chaudvin Kirat. Uh, I think, because this night has a huge significance in the Indian context as the moon is at its most beautiful. So, sounds like it's going to be just a feast for the senses, Uh, you know, a visual treat, if nothing else. Um, He goes on to say, I wanted to throw light on the politics, culture, and music of contemporary India. And he's going to, I think, do the music as well. Oh, no. No, just kidding. He's going to collaborate with the same composer he has worked with for the other films. Um, it says, the film will have music as the backdrop. The place first line is, if music be the food of love, play on. Um, and this guy I'm going to collaborate with always helps me bring out the musician in me. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, doesn't there are no more details, no, like, when to expect it, but really kind of exciting news um amkara is fantastic so uh, i'll be really excited to see this and i think you know it sounds like he wants to sort of make a, a celebration of this 
uh, play and what a play to celebrate. Like it's, it's going to be something special. Yeah. That sounds really cool. Yeah. So that's, that's what I got. Okay. So here are some, Twelfth Night Productions may be happening near you sometime this year. And now I have cut down this list. You know, I've edited out everything that's already happened because that's dumb if I didn't do that. So uh, first on the list is, and I think this might be a touring. Yeah, it's part of the Voters' Choice Tour put on by Shakespeare's Globe. Um, The 7th and 8th of May, 10th of May, and the 6th of September uh, they're doing Twelfth Night, and also it's moving on to Chillum Castle and Kent later in the year, so check that out. Yeah, um, we also have the Chameleons Amateur Dramatic Society, which is such a great name. Uh, at That's amazing. Compass Theater in London from May 24th to May 26th. Yeah, Twelfth Night is also happening at the Bristol Old Vic and the Royal Lyceum Theater in Edinburgh. Uh, and at the other Bristol Old Vic, Bristol, I don't know what I'm reading right now. It's happening at the Old Vic later in the fall, mid-October to mid-November. Yeah. Um, we also have the National Theatre Live, which is going to be uh, freaking great. But, you know, there's sort of no telling when or where that will be. You have to check your right. local listings to find cinemas, dates, and times. But, you know, Google NT Live right. and you'll figure it out. Um, yeah. And you'll find a local yeah. movie theater that's offering it, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Alabama Shakespeare Festival in Montgomery, Alabama, is also performing Twelfth Night later this month. So from April 20th to May 6th. Right. It's happening at Theater for New Audience in Brooklyn, which is May 10th to May 27th. Seattle Shakes is taking Twelfth Night on tour, and that's happening starting May 31st. Is it starting May 31st or ending May 31st? Or is it just going to be in Seattle? Maybe it's culminating in Seattle? All right. Well, it's their touring show. Google it. It's the Seattle Shakes touring show. Google it if you're in the Seattle area and they tour to you. Yeah. Um, Okay. (laughs) Trinity Shakespeare Festival out of Fort Worth is uh, doing Twelfth Night from the middle of June to the beginning of July. Right. Pennsylvania Shakespeare Festival in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, from June 21st to July 15th. Cleveland Shakespeare Festival in Cleveland, oh, uh, is July 20th to August 5th. And Company of Fools, another great company name, in Ottawa, Ontario, for our Canadian friends, from July 2nd to August 18th, is doing Twelfth Night as well. If you are in New England, you can catch it at Theatre at Monmouth in Monmouth, Maine, from the beginning of July through the middle end of August. Oh, yeah, I'm getting I'm getting the sense of a lot of summer festivals. Yeah. Uh, are, doing, are doing Twelfth Night right now. Uh, the Public Theatre, New York, New York, July 17 to August 19, Free Shakespeare in the Park, yep. a.k.a. those people that, like, made the people riot for their Julius Caesar production a year-ish ago. Public Theater. They're doing Twelfth Night this summer, too. Yeah, go support those people. They're doing doing good work. Yes. Um, Shakes in the D, uh, as they are affectionately known on Twitter and Instagram. Yep. It's uh, Detroit Shakespeare in Detroit. Uh, Michigan is doing it in August. I don't know why I said Michigan like that. That was dumb. Let's pretend I didn't do that. <laughs> yep. And then the, the Emily Ann Theater and Gardens in Wembley, Texas. 
uh, due in Twelfth Night from August 31st to September 23rd. Because that's, that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And that is it for our list of onco- upcoming Twelfth Night productions. And that's it for us today. So thank you so much for listening while we sussed out our issues with Twelfth Night. And maybe... Maybe we've generated some questions for you as well. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. Yeah. Um, Make sure you tune in next week for my favorite play. Pericles with the pirates. I'm so fucking excited. I'm excited that you're excited. It's going to be great. It's going to be so good. It's going to be so good. Okay. It's going to be great. All right. All right. The end. Whamlet out. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. Email us at holla, H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram or hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. Shakespeare Show was produced entirely by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet, with no help from anyone, because we're poor. To read more about us, or for other podcast-adjacent materials, visit our website at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Okay, we did have help from one guy, Jonathan Shu, who composed the music you're enjoying right now. For more information on him, go to jonathanshu.com, or check out his albums on iTunes. And hey, If we name-checked you or someone you know during today's podcast, it's because you inspire us. So keep doing what you do best. She's gonna love and do right by me. Have a kid, have some family. Gonna marry me the first woman I see. goal uh uh half effective goal <laughs> i'm sorry an aborted goal yeah. sounds like like a terrible thing happened to a seagull i know i was waiting like, for you to to find that as awful. funny as i thought it was <laughs> oh that's gross okay <laughs>